0: Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll like, never make any money doing that. How are you going to get the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try to that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Will your parents want too? The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations.
1: That really turned out well.
0: No, I wish I thought of
1: that. Uh, I never thought of anyone that. How did you do that? I'm so glad
0: you're here. Today. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Hello and welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you are or you want to be an entrepreneur or a small business person, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for The Next Hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. I've seen a lot of mistakes, and I've made a lot of mistakes myself. The show has two goals, to share helpful information and resources, and to inspire. Now, to help with that, I have guests on the show every week who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Kyle LaFond. He's the founder and CEO of a company called American Providence, which is based in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. Kyle started his career as a wildlife biologist for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, then later transitioned into teaching middle school science. Now, during his years as an educator, he became passionate about encouraging his students to use safe, natural, personal care products, which led to the launch of American Providence. And it's an interesting story that Kyle shared a little bit with me about that I'm sure he'll expand out a little bit in just a minute. But it started in a renovated machine shed on his family's fourth-generation dairy farm. Since then, Kyle has launched several other business ventures and continues to help and mentor-startup founders all across Wisconsin. In 2019, he was appointed to the Board of Directors for Friends of PBS Wisconsin, and in his free time, he likes to work on his family farm in Blue Mounds, Wisconsin. He says that on nice weekends, you can find him hiking and fishing on some of Wisconsin's wonderful public properties. So with that introduction, Kyle, welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thanks so much for being with
1: today. Well, thank you, Doris. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: I think the natural place to start is really to tell us about your business a little bit more about what does American Providence make? How did it get started and, and why?
1: Yeah, well... uh, Of course, all stories have to have kind of fun and interesting beginnings, and uh, that certainly is the case with American provenance. As you mentioned, my background, probably the most rewarding professional thing I've done prior to starting a business was actually teaching. Teaching in the middle school environment, I thought was just a wonderful opportunity. Um, Kids of that age are just so fun and unique and interesting. But one of the things that they never taught me during my teacher education program was the fact that middle school kids stink. I mean, they smell terrible. (laughs) Between (laughs) shoes and backpacks and lunches and BO, uh, some of those kids are, are pretty ripe. So I've kind of made a career out of the fact that, yeah, middle school kids stink. So how this whole journey really started was based upon my concern for my students. I don't know how often folks make their way into middle school environments or if folks have kids that they pay particular attention to, but Most days in the middle school environment, when you're walking down the hallway first thing in the morning, you're really walking through a chemical fog of body spray and cologne and deodorants and all kinds of other crazy stuff. So, uh, for me, when I was teaching, I used to always get these kind of severe headaches towards the end of the day. And for years, I thought it was just due to stress, stress of working with kids and teachers and administrators and parents. But then one day, I had a light bulb moment. I was actually walking down my hallway through that "quote unquote" chemical fog. And I can actually feel my throat start to constrict a little bit. And I thought, wow, there is something really noxious in that canister of this name brand body spray. So I took a look at the canister and the back label and having multiple science degrees and, of course, my educational background, I could only recognize about a third of the ingredients in that particular canister. And I thought, wow, you know, with my experience in education, if that's all I know, the chances that my kids and their parents know more than me are pretty much slim to none. And these things were, were relatively dangerous. So uh, at that point, what I did was I encouraged my kids the following day, hey, bring in an item that you use every single day, a personal care item. I don't care what it is. It can be hairspray, it can be body wash, deodorant, whatever, because we're going to do some research. We're going to find out what all these chemicals and additives and preservatives are, and then tell you what, I'm going to teach you how to make your own without any of the harsh or toxic ingredients. So this quickly became the most popular thing that I did throughout my entire teaching career. I had kids that I wouldn't have in class for another year or two uh, that would find me before school or after school or during lunch and specifically ask me, hey, Mr. LaFond, are we going to do the Diorama project? Well, of course, it's a real world applicable science, things that the kids are interested in and passionate about. So yeah, it became very, very popular. And then I came up on five years of teaching and uh, got to a point in my career where at that five-year mark, you need to figure out if you're going to stick with education or if you're going to transition to something else. I got to this point where... I wanted to have my own business, and based on the popularity of this project in class, I thought, wow, this was a really good way to go. Obviously, there are folks out there that want these type of products. In self-serving, I had actually been looking for products like the ones that we make and really couldn't find anything that, that met my own needs or satisfaction. So basically, I had this crazy idea, and at that point, I approached my mom, and I asked her if I could renovate one of my grandfather's old machine sheds on our family farm to use as a manufacturing and warehouse space. And being the the mother, the wonderful mother that she was, she didn't laugh at me or question me. She just said, yeah, sure, go for it. So I spent about six months renovating this old machine shed to a point where it was usable. And then, yeah, we launched American Provenance right here from my family farm uh, back in May of 2015. Since that time, we've grown quite a bit. Uh, the first three years, we really focused on brick-and-mortar distribution, and you can now find our products in over 4,000 shelves nationwide. The past couple of years, we've been building out our e-commerce platform and we've put together a really nice website and some other channels to sell our products online. So uh, we continue to grow. And and with this thing, I think that the sky's the limit.
0: That is a great story and a good story, you know, a feel good story, because I think a lot of us these days really worry about the chemicals that we're putting in our bodies and our foods and our products and would like the option to have something that's more natural and better for the environment. How did you find or develop your products, Kyle?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and there were actually a couple different ways I went about it. So first and foremost, before I even launched this product in class, I had been kind of tinkering around it in my own kitchen, in my own bathroom, making things for myself, uh, because, again, I hadn't found anything that's I was really happy with. In terms of natural products for men, there wasn't really a lot out there at that point. And the stuff that there was, just to be honest with you, it really didn't work. And I think that's what we've seen with a lot of natural products. I think when natural products first hit the mainstream about 15, 20 years ago, a lot of manufacturers came out with "quote unquote" natural products that weren't very effective at all. And some of those natural products got a really bad rap, really bad name at that point. However, over the course of the past, gosh, probably five to 10 years, a lot of the companies that make these types of products have really upped their game and they're making much better, much higher quality products than ever before. So for us, again, it started off kind of in my own kitchen and then I had the opportunity to actually bring what I was doing at home into the classroom and have my kids work with me. And it was great because doing that in the middle school environment, of course, you're not only teaching kids about the importance of safe, effective, and natural products, but you're instilling somewhat of a lifestyle. Folks that were in my class, really like the project, and I can't tell you how many of my former students I've run across over the course of the past few years that have told me that uh, that was kind of a launching pad for their own life decisions and how they live and the products that they use. And it's always kind of funny. Uh, one of the things that I was really big on while teaching was telling my kids if they accomplished something spectacular or something significant, I would always tell them, hey, I'm really proud of you. Great job. And now to have so many students come back and approach me and say, hey, Michel LaFond, we're really proud of you great job. It's a really kind of a nice uh, turn of events.
0: It is nice. I, though, I'm still curious how you develop them. I mean, did you find people who know how to do this stuff or...
1: Literally was, trial and error in your kitchen? Really? Yeah, there was a lot of research. Then, Yeah, just that, trial and error. For me, it really comes down to ingredients. If you want a truly natural product that is safe and effective, it has to come down to what that product is made of. So a lot of my initial stuff was researching different ingredients, what needs to be in a product for it to be successful and for it to work, and for people to basically be comfortable with it. I've been a label reader my entire life ever since I was back in high school and college. I was always concerned with the stuff that I was either eating or putting on my body. So I was very adamant about reading labels. And one of the things that really bothers me is the fact that on a lot of labels <laughs> using different scientific nomenclature, a lot of these substances, a lot of these ingredients, you have no idea what they are. And so for me, it really came down to using ingredients that were recognizable by the everyday consumer. Once I decided that I was gonna be the path then it was just sourcing the best of those ingredients and using those to formulate different products. So at that point, it came down to picking up different products that I wanted to make. And then, yeah, there was a ton of research, both online and actually buying a lot of our competitors' products and figuring out what they were doing, what they were using, and then basically experimenting with formulations and ratios. A lot of folks don't know it, but back labels of any particular personal care product, those are listed, listed by volume. So the first, second, third ingredients on any product are always going to be the ones that comprise the majority of that product. And the stuff towards the end, there's going to be very little of that in any product. And this really kind of drew my attention towards the need for better natural products. There's a concept out there called greenwashing, where some companies, unfortunately, claim to have a particular ingredient in a product. But what happens is they promote that ingredient, but it's the last one listed on the back panel. So in reality, Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's very little of that ingredient in the product.
0: Well, that's paid and switch. I mean, some might call that even false advertising, but I'm sure one of your pieces of research was all about how labeling has to be done and what's regulated and what's not, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Of course, we took a a lot of time to develop our labels. And, you know, truth in advertising is is big for us. Uh, Unfortunately, there are some companies that find themselves in, in binds because What they advertise or what they promote is not what's actually contained within the bottle or package that they're selling. We never wanna be that way. Again, that's greenwashing, that's very deceptive. In terms of natural products, I'll put our quality and our consistency up against anyone else out there in the market.
0: So how did you come up with the name for your company? You
1: know, you take a look at the history of the state and a lot of folks don't know it, but Wisconsin has always been a top five manufacturing state. I mean, it's part of our heritage, it's part of our DNA. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to be a part of this lineage of great Wisconsin-based American small businesses that have grown to be these regional, national, or even global phenomenons. For me, I always like to think about Harley-Davidson. Those guys, many, many years ago, they started off in a garage. And here with American Provenance, since we started off in a machine shed, for me, I was able to draw some parallels. And so I wanted to encapsulate that, that that feeling of being a great American business. Because when I think about Harley-Davidson, yeah, I think about America and what it means to be an American. So uh, with that said, American, we decided it was going to be part of the name and kind of self-serving as well. A lot of folks don't know this, but price books, whenever you're buying products uh, for a retail center or a shop, a lot of the price books out there are still alphabetical. So having a name that starts with a letter A, were oftentimes one of the first companies that or see when they're selecting products. So um, that was something that was a really happy coincidence. Um, and so it was crazy when I opened up one of our first distributor booklets and I saw our products right there, front page. And I thought, wow, that's great! What a fortunate, uh, a fortunate piece of luck we had to name the company something that starts with the letter A. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then provenance uh, that actually comes from Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd, and I watch a ton of public television, listen to a ton of public radio. And one night, I was actually sitting in my living room watching Antiques Roadshow, and they were talking about the provenance of a particular piece of art. And that word, for some reason, really stuck out to me. So, of course, provenance meaning history, origin, story, and that really kind of came together. So what we're doing here at American Provenance, it's, it's really the story of... A small business trying to grow and scale and become something really special so american provenance i felt really kind of embodied everything that we were all about
0: well it does have a nice ring to it as well it kind of rolls off the tongue so you had ideas for products and a strategy for developing those products but it takes resources to get a company like that off the ground Did you seek outside funding or friends and family, or how did you find funding to get started?
1: Yeah, funding is something as a small business owner that you're always going to have to work on, that you're always going to have to deal with day in and day out. When I first launched the business, at that point, I was actually uh, saving up money for a new house, and uh, I had about 75 grand set aside. So instead of buying a new house, I took that 75 grand and I put it towards the company. That enabled us to bootstrap for the first couple years um, as we grew the business. And then in, gosh, late 2017, early 2018, things were getting pretty tight. And at that point, I thought, you know, if we're going to make it, we're going to need to seek some outside investment. We're going to need to have some partners that are going to help us out. So at that point, uh, I had heard about a program in Madison called Generator, and they were running these studio programs, uh, G-Beta programs, where basically they were introductory kind of models in terms of how to put together a pitch deck, and how to go about uh, seeking funds for small businesses. So I reached out, and I applied to the program, and was very fortunate to get in. So we were part of the G-Beta Spring of 2018 program. And In that cohort, there were some wonderful, wonderful businesses that uh, we joined up and really learned more about how to put together a deck, how to approach investors, what investors are looking for, and how to kind of frame conversations. At that point, we were very fortunate. I started pitching and going out and meeting with folks, and uh, I met a group called the Winnebago Seed Fund, uh, headed by a gentleman named David Trotter. David is a wonderful fund manager. had a chance to basically visit with him a couple times to form a little bit of a personal touch and a, and a close relationship. Then I presented to his group and uh, was funded thereafter. So David and the Winnebago Seed Fund, uh, they provided our initial funding. They were joined by a group out of Chicago called True Fragrance and Beauty, which is an industry group that had interest in natural products and wanted to see what the potential was in terms of a partnership. So uh, they joined the Winnebago Seed Fund for our seed round, and that gave us funding for the next couple of years. And right now I'm actually engaged in another round to raise more funds as we continue to grow and scale. A lot of folks don't know it or may not be familiar with it, but scaling businesses really burn cash. Um, There's a cost for growth, and a lot of times that's far more than an entrepreneur can put on their own shoulder.
0: Yeah, well a couple of thoughts. First is that Troy Vossler, who is one of the co-founders of Generator, was also a recent guest on the show. And so folks who listen in and who might be interested in learning more about accelerators or in particular some of the great programs that Generator has, should, you know, listen to the show archive, find that show and listen to it. It's so I think a good listen. And second, I'm just smiling as you're talking about funding, because one of the truisms that I certainly found is that everything seems to take longer and cost more than you initially think. No matter how good your business plan is, don't you agree with that?
1: That's exactly it. And there's actually, uh, I was reading about the rule of threes. And uh, the rule of threes, I think, really explains our situation kind of to a T. Based on our initial projections and what I thought everything was going to cost, you take a look at what you think it's going to cost you to open a business, multiply that by three. That's going to be your realistic number. And then in terms of getting the market, acquiring sales traction, think about that time frame and again, multiply that times three. So this whole idea of the uh, the rule of three, that's something that, man, the more I think about it and look back upon our journey, that was pretty much right on in terms of how we started and how we grew. So. Yeah, you're exactly right. That always takes about three times as much cash as you think. And it's going to take about three times as long as you may have anticipated.
0: I'm interested in learning how the company has grown. Talk about your product launch and introduction strategy.
1: Yes, our introduction strategy was pretty unique, actually. One of the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to make sure that we had brick and mortar distribution right away. In the cosmetics world, personal care world, there are a lot of companies that realistically are marketing firms. They run a whole bunch of online ads and basically sell through e channels their own website or amazon or whatever else and that's really about it they tend to ignore brick and mortar distribution don't feel it's going to be a place where their products will particularly sell i was just the opposite i thought in order to have a legitimate brand that we needed to have a bunch of retailers on board so uh, the first three years 2015 through 2018 almost every week i would jump in my truck with a whole bunch of samples and I would go out to pretty much every grocery store, every supermarket, every pharmacy, every specialty shop, every chiropractic office I could find and basically drop off samples, provide pricing sheets and tell folks, hey, I want you to try these out for a week or two. And then I'll either step on back or, or I'll call on you and we'll see if you want to carry these. So, yeah, for the first three years, I was on the road um, and I was doing the traditional hand selling, kind of the face to face thing. And the response, I think, was really fantastic. Most of the buyers that I talked to at the store level or most of the owners of these stores, they had never met anyone that was actually the founder of a company. So to walk in and say, hey, um, I'm not a sales rep. I'm not a broker. This is actually the company that I started. We make everything on my family farm. You're talking to the guy right here and right now. I want our products on your shelf. How can I make that happen? And that was extremely effective. Looking back at our numbers, uh, I got into nine of 10 stores that we would approach so that's pretty phenomenal when you consider wow. most, the, yeah, most so sales. Time,
0: you missed your calling as a salesperson, because obviously that takes some pretty good sales skills. And, you know, I'm curious about your experience, though, with some of the bigger companies. You know, I don't know if a school teacher always prepares you for dealing with big corporate bureaucracies. How did you deal with that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I do think going back to the the sales front, I think being a teacher and having that background, I think that really did help me and able to being able to relate and talk to folks. But dealing with bigger accounts, um, that was kind of unique. And one of the things that I like to stress is there's always an element of luck involved in anything, right? And what I find is that the harder we work, the luckier we get. So for us, when I use the example of uh, of Whole Foods. When we first approached Whole Foods, uh, we basically went to their three Wisconsin locations. And when we walked in the doors at Walatosa, we actually made a connection with a gal there that was applying for a job at the corporate office in Chicago. And as part of her interview process, she had to present a new brand to be carried at Whole Foods. I viewed that as a golden opportunity. So I gave her as much product as she wanted. So when she went down to her interview in Chicago to present to the folks at the corporate office or the regional office there, she had all of our products with us. So she went through her interview process, presented American Provenance to the hiring committee there. And then just a few weeks later, uh, we were contacted by the regional office saying, hey, we just found out about your your products, your brand. Uh, we'd like to have a discussion and see about bringing your products in. Um, no so, yeah.
0: way. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was just sheer luck and timing. And uh, I can't stress that enough. For all the playing that that folks do, it really sometimes does come down to just having that lucky break. I've talked to more entrepreneurs that will say the exact same thing, that, you know, you're plugging away, plugging away, day in and day out. And then suddenly something wonderful and unexpected happens that, again, is just sheer luck that may push you over the top.
0: Sheer luck. But if I understand you correctly, I mean, really, you did a lot of pounding the pavement. and. Although you had a pretty high success rate, a lot of people may get a lot of no's, but to get that lucky break, you got to keep working through the no's and just keep shouldering through, right?
1: That's just it. I think one of the things that uh, my team will tell you that I've got a a pretty thick skull and a pretty short memory. So (laughs) the days where I've been told no, I, I quickly forget about those and move on to the next. But actually, yeah, going back to some of these larger accounts, they actually have, of course, corporate review periods where every year, every season, they go through submissions for new brands. And it used to be the point where uh, sales reps and brokers would facilitate and manage those meetings. A lot of that because of COVID-19 has moved online. So now there's a group out there called RangeMe that actually serves as kind of a portal for manufacturers and retailers. And so retailers, of course, submit products, set up a profile on RangeMe, and then buyers from all these larger corporations then go on and, and see about uh, taking on new products. So it really is kind of a mix of doing that traditional face-to-face type meeting. And as yeah, we move into kind of a, a new era here, a lot more of that is transitioning online.
0: Very interesting. You know, back to your product line, how has your product portfolio changed?
1: Yeah, that's a great question as well. So we actually started out with quite a bit more than we currently have. And again, that was part of the strategy. I actually wanted to do some beta testing and put a whole bunch of products out there, see which ones were most popular, and then scale down the line over time. And that's exactly what we've done. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a great example of that would be our, our first accounts. So our first brick and mortar accounts, were the three V's here in the Madison area. So I went to each one of those high V's. Gosh, we launched the company in May of 2015. It was the first week of June, 2015. I went to all 3 high V's here in Madison. And I had heard through the grapevine that Hy-Vee was unique in that they empower their floor managers to buy local products. So if someone comes in with a local product that they like, they can make that decision on the spot to bring them in. Luckily yeah. for me, yeah, that was a good tidbit that I picked up, but uh, luckily for me, I knew that walking into it and meeting with all three buyers at all three locations, they really liked what we were doing. They liked the the products. They liked the design. And all three of them gave us end caps right away, which is totally unheard of.
0: Um, What's an end cap?
1: An end cap is on the end of a grocery aisle. So, of course, you have aisles that you walk down. Yeah, but on the very end, oftentimes you have really nice displays, larger shelves. You have more space. You can really showcase items. So, to get three end caps our, our first week out in business, that was again totally unheard of and awesome. So, uh, what I did was I loaded these three end caps up with all kinds of products with, you know, aftershave, beard balm, hair pomade, deodorant, soap, you name it. I put everything out. That was on a Friday afternoon. I let the weekend go because I wanted to see what people were going to buy and came back to all three stores on Monday. And of course, you know, a lot of our products had been purchased. But uh, of the gosh, I think I put 36 deodorants out of the 36 deodorants. I put out each location. Yeah. Yeah. So I put out three cases, excuse me, six cases out at each one of those locations. And over the weekend, all the deodorants were gone. So that Monday I came back to the shop and I I told my uh, my two employees at that point, hey, I think we're going to be a deodorant company. Our customers have spoken and this is what they want.
0: Well, I have lots more questions for you, Kyle, but right now we need to take a quick break for station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. But stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with Kyle LaVon. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Kyle, you know, I love the stories of how you first were able to get your products out to local businesses and I'm amazed that you started with more products than you have today. In some ways, a little counterintuitive. You know, Most companies have a, a core and then they kind of do product innovations that branch out from the core. Talk a little bit more about your strategy and how you decided to winnow back some of the products that you started out with.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And uh, for me, it comes back to the fact that if you look at a lot of these MBA programs or a lot of the stuff that's written out there online as resources for entrepreneurs, a lot of it is the same thing. And I did not want to have the same approach as everyone else. Um, I think for me, not having MBA, not having a business background before launching one actually really helped me because a lot of things that I learned, I had to learn the, the the tough way. I had to learn by doing them. I had to learn them through experience. I had to learn by making mistakes. So basically, not going back and relying on everything that you read in books or may hear in a class, but actually turning your own path, I think really helped out. And for us with our product portfolio, you know, I just took it as thinking about, you know, it's better to start off with more and then figure out what our core products are going to be. Now, I was of the uh, kind of mindset that, I never want to dictate to our customers what they should be using. I want our customers to tell us what they want. And then once they tell us what they want, we'll make those products and we'll focus on those products. So it was, it was definitely backwards. Well, you from.
0: Said, you essentially were doing market research at the same time you were launching then. I mean, and you know, everybody says you should do all this market research and see if there's a demand. You, you just went into watch, but we're doing market research at the same time,
1: really. Yeah, that's just that. I mean, there's there's no better way to learn than just by doing it. And I've heard from other entrepreneurs throughout the course of the past several years that basically, if you wait for the right time or the perfect time to launch a product, it's going to be too late. And the other thing is that, you know, if you're not embarrassed by the first and second generations of products you make, you're not doing it right because you should constantly be innovating and evolving and improving. There's no reason to wait. Let's get the stuff out there. Let's let the dust settle. And again, let our customers tell us what they want.
0: So how have your products evolved?
1: Basically, we've taken two kind of unique paths as we move forward. Number one, we're essentially a deodorant company. About 80% of our sales are natural deodorants, of which we make 12 different varieties. And then as an aside to that, we're kind of looked at as more or less a men's grooming company. And reasons for that, there are all kinds of companies out there that focus on female beauty, female health and wellness, female grooming, but not a lot that focus on men's grooming. So basically, we thought that pairing this whole deodorant concept with products for men would be a good way for us to kind of set ourselves apart and grow. We didn't want to be pigeonholed as just being one thing, a deodorant company or a men's company, but wanted to have products and services that appeal to all kinds of folks. So even though we do have more men's green products than anything else. We've got all kinds of women that buy our deodorants as well. So we figured that it was a good way for us to expand our customer base and to basically entertain folks of any sex, age, preference, you name it, to give us a much bigger field of play in.
0: Well, speaking of expanding your market, you mentioned, and I noticed that your website does have a really robust e-commerce platform. Talk about the transition to e-commerce because I'm sure that whole approach to selling is somewhat different than getting in your truck and going to Hy-Vee and you know, talking to the store managers or product managers, right?
1: Oh, it definitely is. Actually, when we did our seed round back in 2018, the whole purpose of that raise was to build out our e platform and to be aggressive in entering e sales. So utilizing the funding provided by the Winnebago Seed Fund and True Fragrance and Beauty, we actually transitioned. So what I mean by that is prior to that date, uh, we had a, a nice website, but it was built on a, a platform that wasn't really suited for e-commerce. With that investment, we transitioned everything over to a Shopify store. Shopify, for, fo- for those folks out there that don't know, and I preach this all the time to other entrepreneurs, if you're looking to do business online to create an e-com platform, your website must be on the Shopify platform. Shopify provides so much more information and analytics than any other vendor out there that realistically, there is no competition. So I tell folks all the time, if you're gonna have an online business, build it on a Shopify platform, that's what you need to do. So uh, in 2018, we kind of transitioned and really built that out and for us, One of the things that was really great about uh, speeding up our e-com experience was being able to list all those brick and mortar accounts that we had already secured. So when people looked at our website, if they wanted to find out more about the company, of course, they could read about our story, our origins, our history, our products, but also where they could find our products.
0: So it really
1: made the brand legitimate uh, rather than just having a brand that was online only. So having that omni-channel approach is something that we really started building out in 2018 and has really served purposes as we continue to grow. This year, we take a look at kind of the way things have gone on with the onset of COVID-19. Prior to COVID, our sales were split about 60-40, 60% online, and then 40% through our brick-and-mortar partners, of which there's more than 4,000 nationwide. Over the course of the spring, summer, and early fall, when we were at kind of a peak quarantine, our online business transitioned to upwards of 85%. People were choosing to buy products online more than ever before. Yeah, so we see this kind of dramatic shift.
0: Well, that was extremely, as you might say, lucky or extremely prescient. A lot of foresight getting your business online before this whole pandemic hit, because it sounds like it was great that you were ready, ready to rock and roll and gear up for that.
1: That's just it. I mean, I feel really badly for businesses out there that, perhaps only had a brick-and-mortar footprint, or perhaps businesses that had not yet built out their e com channels. I mean, it became very, very important in 2020, and I think it's going to continue to be that important here in 21 and beyond.
0: Yeah. So how has the sales approach been different for e-commerce versus selling through really more through channels? Because online, you're really appealing directly to the consumer, whereas Selling to Hy-Vee or Whole Foods, you're really selling through a channel, right? Does that yeah. have changed how you've marketed your products or the products you've decided to carry?
1: There's been a lot of education. And uh, what I mean by that is there are some things that I've learned over the course of the past five years that I had not expected. So what do I mean by that? When we take a look and we've done all kinds of surveys and studies and talk to buyers and all kinds of stuff, when you look at our customers, we have different customers, different buyers and users depending on the platform. And this is gonna sound kind of crazy, but it also sounds very stereotypical and kind of antiquated. When I <laughs> ask guys, <laughs> it's, it's get ready for it. When I ask guys, what kind of deodorant do you wear? Oh, whatever my wife buys at the store. So wait a minute, you don't buy your own deodorant, your wife buys your deodorant? Okay, interesting. So then we asked you know, other gentlemen, hey, what do you wear for deodorant? Where do you get it? Oh, you know, I just order a bunch online and have them sent to my house. So I do that maybe like once a year. So what we found out was that in-store in brick and mortar, about 80% of our customers are women who are not only buying for themselves, but they're buying for their husbands, partners, boyfriends, kids, and sometimes oh. even relatives or parents. Whereas online, it's just the opposite. It's about 80-20. It's about 80% men who are buying products usually in bulk for quite a long time and for themselves. So it was fascinating for us to realize that, hey, our, our, our purchaser is different based on where they acquire the product, if it's in store or online. So to that end, a lot of the stuff that we've done for brick and mortar distribution, that's been more kind of unisex. Whereas if you look online, a lot of the stuff is much more masculine to appeal to that 80% of our purchasers who are online or men.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. Sounds like a great B school marketing case study, right there. Kyle, talk a little bit about how the company has grown, and it has grown quite rapidly. Talk about some of the, the ways it's grown, maybe some of the challenges you've experienced along the way as you've
1: grown. Yeah, so 2020, of course, is an anomaly with COVID 19, but prior to 2020, we had grown at at least twenty percent quarter over quarter ever since we launched. So that's pretty phenomenal in terms of, yeah, in terms of how we're yeah, in terms of how we're going. And we've been able to use that as kind of a springboard to kind of measure and project our growth moving forward. In terms of the challenges, there have been a whole bunch. I mean, going back to the very inception of the company, we launched here on my family farm and operated here for about the first three years and we were comfortable, but it got to a point where the demand for our products was increasing so much that uh, at one point, yeah, we had to move off the farm. And there's a a funny story to share there as well. When I first launched the business here on my family farm, the first thing I did before I even touched the building to make some renovations was I contacted my local town board and uh, basically went before them and sought permission to start and operate this business. At that point, they gave me a conditional use permit for a large-scale family business, which allowed us to run out here. Of course, with that conditional use permit, They were granted an annual visit to come and check and see the facility and see how we were doing and to see if things still made sense for us to operate here. And uh, I remember that year when they came out for their annual visit, we had it was probably the worst timing ever. We had four or five semis coming in, we had a bunch of people going and coming and going, and uh, I knew right away when they came out for the annual visit that that was going to be the last year at the farm because we had just gotten to the point where we were too big and too to continue here. So. That challenge was they, they told me after that annual visit, hey, you've got until the end of the year to find a new place to operate, which at that point gave me about six months. But fortunately, the very next day, the chairman of our town board here called me and said, hey, Kyle, I think I have your, your problem sorted out. And he basically, connected me, yeah, he basically connected me to another businessman here in Blue Mountains Township that was in the process of building out a commercial or industrial park. And we had some great talks right away, got along. And he agreed to put up a building for us that, that we now rent. So we've moved out of the machine shed into an 8,500 square building just down the road. And it was all facilitated by our town board. Uh, I mean, that's the way that local government's supposed to work.
0: Wow, you have been a lucky man. Or you've made your own luck. I'm not sure which. But either way, it's <laughs> it's uh, certainly been great. Let's talk just a little bit about your journey. What would you say is the best part about having your own business
1: has been? I think the the best and worst part are kind of all wrapped into one. For me, providing jobs and opportunities for folks, I think is absolutely the best part of owning my own business. I've always said, and I, I maintain this, you know, today and every day here forward, that I always hire people who are more talented and intelligent than I am. And it's my job to bring them in and then to get out of the way and let them grow. So. I think as a business owner that's been my my number one my number one task is to to find people that are going to be able to go ahead and carry this ship forward and who are talented and intelligent and can really do far more than I can. I don't have the expertise or skills to do everything related to the business. Of course I need help. So bringing those folks on has been awesome. It's also been probably the most stressful part of the job because As a small business, you know, you're fighting for every dollar that you make and you realize that the people you hired, they rely on you. They rely on you for their income, for their hopes and dreams, um, to raise families, to put their kids through school. So there's a lot of pressure there. So on the one side, of course, it's great to be providing these jobs to folks and, and letting them do things that they may not have had a chance to do in leadership roles beforehand. But also, it's very stressful knowing that, hey, they've shown a lot of faith in you, and now you have to return that favor by doing the best you can every single day to make sure you stay in business and allow them to to reach their dreams.
0: You know, it's one of those things that sounds great. It's funny, my daughter is graduating college, and I asked her what she wants to do. She says, well, I want to be a boss. I want to have a bunch of people report to me. (laughs) (laughs) I just laughed, and I said, oh, you know, that sounds so familiar. Even when I did supervise people, it was a lot of work. I mean, it sounds great, but there's a lot, of, a lot of hard things that go along with that, which is sometimes telling people their performance isn't up to snuff or trying to deal with some of their own personal challenges. There's a lot that goes into being a boss. And then you layer on, as you say, it's one thing if you're a boss of people in a big company. I don't think you feel quite the same pressure. Maybe I should have. I didn't. But when, when you're a small business person, you connect those dots pretty quickly.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see right away. And for me, kind of another light bulb moment. One of my employees, she, she brought her daughter out to the shop one day. And my daughter came up and gave me a big hug, and she said, I love you. And I was like, oh, that's cute. And then uh, as they were walking away, she, my employee said, she loves you because you're putting her through college. And uh, <laughs> talk about, like, raising the stress level through the roof. I am thinking, oh, my gosh, it's not only my employee that's looking at me and relying on me. It's it's her children. It's their future. Like, that's a pretty heavy responsibility.
0: Yeah, well, what are some of the roadblocks that you've encountered along the way and how have you dealt with those?
1: Yeah, roadblocks, that's, a, that's kind of a, a funny word. And whenever I think about like our journey or the entrepreneurial journey, it's it's a roller coaster. I mean, it's these kind of super high highs and these super low lows. And oftentimes it's on the same day. I think being a business owner, there's more volatility than in any other job I've ever had. So you have to be really prepared to kind of roll with the punches and go with the flow. So some of the challenges that we face, uh, well, number one, of course, identifying key people, identifying key people to be on your team and to, and to join you. You have to realize that bringing on new employees, it's, it's a great thing when you get to the point where you're ready to add folks and build your team. But you have to realize that making the wrong decision or bringing on someone that doesn't fit, that can be really detrimental and have a bunch of consequences. So one of the challenges that uh, I face, gosh, I don't want to say constantly, but pretty often is making decisions on who's on the team, who is a, a valuable contributor, who do we feel can help us get to our next level. And uh, if we have to make some difficult decisions and, and part ways with someone, uh, yeah, that weighs on me a lot as well. So. The whole human resources aspect has been a challenge for us. And then just scaling. A lot of folks don't understand that it's great to start off as a small business, but you got to keep growing. You got to keep running. You got to keep chasing. And just all the challenges that scaling, scaling a business presents, whether it be facilities, products, ingredients, packaging, labeling, human resources, as you get bigger, it gets more complicated. With the folks that have been with me since day one, we often reflect on our time here at my farm uh, when we first started. You know, Those were the good old days. We didn't even know they were the good old days, but things seemed to be a lot easier when we were first starting off. Um, As you get bigger, things get more complicated, and it's just kind of the nature of the beast. So I've talked to a bunch of folks about, hey, does it ever get to a point where where things are easy? And uh, everyone tells me the same thing. They say, It's never going to be easy. There's always going to be challenges, but you have to realize there are effective ways to to manage those challenges, to meet those challenges, and to view them more as opportunities for growth. So, yeah, there's always going to be something, but uh, you've got to keep your chin up and look towards the bright side.
0: I'd love to hear a story or two of how you dealt with challenges when you were scaling. You mentioned finding ingredients. It's a little bit about a day in the life of how you deal with some of those issues.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, with ingredients, it's kind of a a blessing and a curse. So, when we first started off, of course, we're out there and we're shopping and we're trying to find vendors that will work with us that have the highest quality ingredients at affordable prices. And when you're a small company, of course, a lot of folks don't trust the fact that you're going to be around. So, you're paying cash up front. Whereas when you grow and you scale, all of a sudden you get these volume discounts. And so there's great examples in terms of packaging. When we talk about our shipping boxes or any of the packaging for our products, the more we buy, the cheaper these products become per unit. So it actually in a lot of cases, if we're buying say, let's say 5,000 deodorant tubes or 5,000 boxes, it'll cost us actually more than it would cost us to buy 25,000 or 30,000 of those just because economies of scale. But you can't yeah. do that until you get to a point where you're comfortable. So realizing really early on that a lot of our economies of scales, of course, are skewed towards much larger businesses. So the whole race is to get to a point where you're selling enough where you can take advantage of these economies of scale and really purchase ingredients, packaging, labels, materials, even equipment at deeper discounts just because of the volume. So we're always kind of fighting that war to figure out, hey, how do we do this the best way possible to gain the the most, uh, the most reasonable pricing? So yeah, a lot of it is taking a look and projecting and figuring out where we're going to be. And then, yeah, probably some of the, the better things we've done as we've grown, we've been able to negotiate terms in terms of net 30s, 45s, or 60s for a lot of things that we're purchasing. So we don't have to absorb those costs up front.
0: Very interesting. Well, the company has obviously grown tremendously since 2015. Where do you see the company in three years or maybe even five years if you're successful? What will the company look like?
1: Hopefully it'll be a household name. I think we've done a really nice job of creating brand awareness here in the Midwest, but we need to be recognized on the coast. And So continue to grow with our existing partners, Whole Foods, Hy-Vee, Giant Eagle, picking up more regional and national grocers and key accounts, gaining distribution, and then actually exporting. The state of Wisconsin has some wonderful programs through WEDC and WMEP. And we participated in one of those back in 2019 called Export Tech. And basically, it's a program put on by the state that teaches you the nuances of getting your products to market on foreign soil. So we're going to be looking to do a lot more exporting here in 21 and 22 to grow the brand beyond the United States.
0: I could see a lot of markets, Europe, Canada, that would be interested in all natural products. It's not just here in the United States that I think people are increasingly focused on that. Do you think you'll ever get tired of working in and on the business of American provenance?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. I don't think so. I really like what I'm doing right now. I still get up with the same energy and passion every day that I did when I was first thinking about this years ago. So the fact that that hasn't waned, I think, is a a really good signal. So I want to keep doing this for as long as I can and keep growing this thing. Of course, like most other folks, uh, I'm passionate about not only national products, but uh, a bunch of other things. So having the whole uh, kind of entrepreneurial thing in my blood, uh, I probably will have some opportunities here in the future to hopefully launch some other companies and explore some other avenues. So it's kind of funny. I don't ever even think about retirement. I just kind of think about the next project. And uh, hopefully that keeps me young.
0: Well, it sounds like you're pretty adept at pivoting, and so what you're describing is probably just a pivot. And uh, the great part about hiring great people, which sounds like you're very focused on, is that will free you up to be able to pursue some of these other ventures without without actually leaving American Providence and do multiple things, right?
1: I hope so. I don't like to sleep, so I like to stay busy.
0: Maybe that's a key criteria for entrepreneurs is, Dave, you don't like to sleep. Well, you know, looking back on your journey, I'm curious about the advice you would give your younger self, or maybe put a different way, advice that you would give to other entrepreneurs who are starting out.
1: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that I tell folks all the time, and I hate to steal it from Nike, but realistically, just do it. If you're thinking about it and if it's been something that's been on your mind for a while, you're never going to know unless you try. And I've talked to a lot of folks that, for one reason or another, maybe they're comfortable or satisfied in the position that they're in. They have great ideas, but they just don't ever make the effort to make it happen. So I tell folks all the time if this is something that you're really passionate about, that you've got a vision for, realistically, just do it. There's never going to be a good time. You know, people create excuses from now until the cows come home but none of those excuses are really valid. If it's something you want to do, do it, period.
0: Great advice. Well, one last question before we let you go. If people are interested in chatting with you about your products, or maybe your story, or maybe just want to brainstorm with you as a fellow entrepreneur, what's the best way for them to
1: reach you? I'm wide open and very transparent. Best ways to reach me via email. It's pretty simple. It's just Kyle at AmericanProvenance.com. Otherwise, I do a lot of phone stuff as well. Uh, my number is 608-338-5953. Or you can always track me down at the shop. We've got a, another email. Hello at AmericanProvenance.com, or you can schedule shop visits and uh, kind of meet me one-on-one. One of the things that we do is uh, I push everybody out at Friday at noon, so. Usually it's a four and a half day work week. Most times actually it's a four day work week. I don't like folks even being in the office on Friday. So Friday afternoons, basically I do tours and entertain folks and basically talk about anything that they're working on that I can help them out with. So I'm always available and we're happy to be a resource for anyone that's thinking about starting a business.
0: Wow. Generous offer. And I don't think you mentioned your company website, but I want to give you a chance to Put that out there, too, just so people can check out your products and your story.
1: Yeah, it's just AmericanProvenance.com. And the other thing I like to put out there is uh, I would love for folks to follow us on social media. We've got a really nice Instagram account, which is just American Provenance. And same thing on Facebook, American Provenance as well. And we do sometimes post on Twitter, and that's APDORENT. So uh, we'd love to hear from folks and have them follow us for this journey.
0: Kyle, thank you so much for being on this show this week. It was really great having you.
1: You bet, Doris. Thank you.
0: Hi, folks. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you especially again to our guest this week, Kyle LaFon, the founder of a company based in Wisconsin called American Provenance. Now, you can find more helpful information and resources on my website, there's a library there of tools, blogs, podcasts, and other resources for entrepreneurs and small business people. My door is always open for comments. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me suggestions, comments, or just reach out to Shoot the Breeze at dnagle at lakesradio, plural, lakesradio.org. I promise you'll always get a response from me. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central. Noon Eastern, we'll have another great guest and topic. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.